Welcome to the AWP podcast series. This event was recorded at the 2015 AWP conference in Minneapolis. The recording features Arna Bontemps Hemingway, Caitlin Horrocks, Pam Houston, Rebecca Mackay, and Rob Spillman. You will now hear Arna Bontemps Hemingway provide introductions. This is the art of the encounter, structuring short fiction. Can everyone hear me in the back? You hear? Okay, good. Thanks for coming. My name is Arna Bontemps Hemingway. I have to start off with some news. Unfortunately, that Molly Antipole and Chanel Okaranta could not be here today due to some circumstances. But we're very lucky to have two wonderful ringers that I could call in, um, Rob and, and Pam, Rob Spillman and Pam Houston, which we'll talk about in a second. I'm joined today by Rebecca Mackay, Caitlin Horrocks, Pam Houston, and Rob Spillman. And I'll get to their bios in a moment, but I thought I'd introduce them first the way that I was first introduced to them, which was as a reader. In some ways, though, none of them have seen me very much, and a couple of them have never seen me before five minutes ago. (laughs) These guys have been with me through a substantial portion of my life. I remember finishing Painted Ocean, Painted Ship, my very favorite Rebecca Mackay story, while sitting in a park in Pittsburgh, No H, Kansas. I kept having to get up and walk around the pond before sitting down and reading its incredible last section over and over again. I remember listening to a bootleg audio version of Pam Houston's Cowboys Are My Weakness <laughs> while spending an entire afternoon single-handedly trying to move a new fridge into the first house I shared with my wife. The reason it took all afternoon, besides it really being too big for both the stairway and the doorway, being that I kept having to stop and sit and listen to her sentences wrapped around me. And I remember feeling dizzy with wonder in the reading room of my MFA program as I looked up from the finale of Caitlin Horrocks' wonderfully strange vision of a story at the zoo. And I vividly remember, as a college student, having to ask an extremely beautiful young woman to pay for the movie on our first date because I'd spent the ticket money on an issue of Tin House (laughs) that Rob crafted seemingly just for me. There was was no second date. Thanks, Rob. No, it was worth it. (laughs) I go into all this potentially annoying personal anecdote to testify that if it's one thing these panelists know, it's how to make or shape or select stories that haunt the reader which I mean in the best possible way. Their stories will weave their way into your memories and come out even with real things in your life. The question then for the rest of us is how? How does one do this? Well, we're here today to talk about one important organizing principle of that how and its structure. Rebecca Mackay is the author of two novels, The Borrower and The Hundred Year House, as well as the forthcoming story collection, Music for Wartime. Her stories have appeared in nearly every magazine worth reading, including Harper's, Plowshares, and Tin House. And though she absolutely hates me saying this, I'm going to say it anyway, she holds the modern record for consecutive appearances in the Best American Short Stories in 2008, 2009, 2010, and 2011. Her stories have also been featured, I know, right? Her stories have also been <laughs> featured on This American Life and Selected Shorts. Caitlin Horrocks is the author of the story collection, This Is Not Your City. Her stories have appeared in the Best American Short Stories, the Penn O'Henry Prizes, Ten House, One Story, and the Paris Review, for this last of which she was awarded the Plimpton Prize for the Best New Voice published that year. 
She's also had a story featured in The New Yorker on whose website you can additionally read a wonderful interview where she schools their fiction editor on how to write great prose and also somehow <laughs> convinces them to link to a blog called Bev's Guinea Pig City. I'm not even making that up. <laughs> it's a high point of their journalism, I think. No, it's good. Pam Houston is the author of five books, including the story collections Cowboys Are My Weakness and Waltzing the Cat. Her stories have been selected for the O. Henry Awards and have appeared in both the Best American Short Stories 1999 and the Best American Short Stories of the Century, making her possibly the only person in history to have pleased both editors John Updike and Amy Tan at the same time. <laughs> she has also been awarded something called the Evil Companions Literary Award, which makes me only a little afraid to be introducing her. <laughs> Uh, she lives on a ranch in Colorado at 9,000 feet elevation, which is not, as I originally misread, on a ranch 9,000 feet in the air. <laughs> I'm one of those people who knows a little about a lot, but to read Rob Spillman's journalism, book reviews, essays, and columns is to realize that he knows so much about so many different things that you should probably stop saying you know a little bit about a lot because you really don't in comparison. <laughs> His work has appeared in Salon, Book Forum, GQ, Details, The New York Times Book Review, Rolling Stone, Spin, Sports Illustrated, and Vanity Fair, among many others. He's worked for Random House and The New Yorker. But of course, at least greatest in my mind, he's founder and editor of Tin House Magazine. And just because his time management skills weren't impressive enough already, he's also editor of Tin House Books. He is simply put, responsible for the publication of some of the best short fiction published in this country every year. Finally, I'm Arna Bontemps Hemingway. I'm the author of the collection Elegy on Kinderklavier. My fiction has appeared or is forthcoming in Best American Short Stories 2015, A Public Space, Ecotone, and the Missouri Review, among other places. You, you're not stopping there, Arna. He just won the Penn Hemingway Award. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks. <laughs> Thanks. <laughs> we'll try to have this panel be a prompted discussion uh, with a Q&A at the end. So I guess we can start with this question of um, how do you think you experience structure as you're reading a story, which is kind of another way of asking what you think structure needs to do for a story. Rebecca, you want to go first? I can go first, yeah. Okay. Um, I think I, I notice structure most in the end. I, I'm someone who pays a lot of attention to the ways stories end. Um, and for me, it it really makes or breaks a story. I think for most of us it does, and yet we spend, I think, the least amount of time discussing it in workshop, um, in reviews, in um, even just a book club. But, oh, we don't want to talk about the ending in case anyone hasn't finished it yet. <laughs> and um, that's really where it lands. I mean, we judge, we judge fiction on its ending to the same extent that we judge a joke or sex on its ending. It doesn't matter what's come before. <laughs> it's all you need to know. So I notice it most then, partly because I'm most tuned into it, and I think I, I notice a lot of the ending, what's changed, what's been reversed. There's often a very ungrounding element at the end. Either we're moving forward or backward in time. Maybe we're moving in perspective. Maybe we're moving in the story's relationship to the reader at the end in what the, author, the author's contract is with the reader, revealing, for instance, an unreliable narrator right at the end, which then makes me look back at the whole. And I, I, I tend to think of structure in very um, Aristotelian terms. I told Arna to shut me up if I only talk about Aristotle today, but that's really the way I think about story structure, his ideas of peripatia, meaning moments of reversal, that there's often one very close to the beginning of the story and one somewhere near the climax of the story that affects its outcome. At reversal meaning, you know, 
Oedipus was a peasant, now he's the king of Thebes. Later on, Oedipus was the king of Thebes, now he realizes he's married to his mother and gouges his eyes out. Major reversals at both points, one leading us into the ending. And, and often it doesn't become clear what those reversals are, what the really important ones, and there are usually two, have been until everything is echoing in those last few paragraphs. So, before, Just before I start, I want to say that I just got here, I just flew in a, about an hour ago, and... Um, and I was feeling the typical AWP dread, you know, of being in the same building with 13,000 people with the same prevailing anxieties. And I was walking over here trying to get my game face on. And honestly, like, if you had told me this many people would come to talk about the short story, like, that's a good enough reason to just come to AWP at all. I'm feeling very cheered up by your presence here, specifically as, as a lover of short stories. I mean, short stories are my true love. And... And just that there's this many people who wanted to hear us talk about it when there's another panel on sex right now uh, <laughs> is awesome. And everyone they locks didn't, up. They the didn't all know that. <laughs> so. awesome. yeah. but, but anyway, in structure for me, when I was asked to be on this panel about 30 hours ago, um, I, I was really excited because I thought, well, I get to talk about something that's actually very meaningful to me, which doesn't always happen here. And for me, I, I mean, I can't even, I, I can't overstate how important structure is for me. And, and my own particular idea of structure as it applies to my own work, it, it's the thing that makes me feel safe. It, it, once I understand, and I really think of it as geometry, I, 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 I'm not good at Aristotle and I, and I don't know that much about it, but I, but I think really in terms of physical shape, of, of concrete physical shape. So one story, and, and this is true when I read and I write, the question was really about reading. But if I think of some of my favorite stories, like, for instance, Welty's No Place for You, My Love. Like, to me, that, that story is a boomerang. It's, it's, a, it's a story that traces the, art of a boomer, the arc of a boomerang. Or um, Mary Gateskill's story, Mirrorball, is, of course, a, a mirrorball in its structure. But I, I think of, whenever I read a story, and, I, and I'm thinking about how it works and how to teach it to students, um, or how to... How to think about my own work in relationship to it, I'm thinking, what is this story? And, and any, really, any shape, any geometry of the physical world can, I, I can then apply to the story. So I think of some stories as spirograph flowers. I think about spirograph flowers all the time when I read, I don't know if you remember spirograph, but <laughs> there were a lot of different shapes and and they were quite particular, and I love Spirograph, and so I think of that. I think about slinkies a lot. I think about slinkies walking downstairs or two slinkies tangled with each other. I think about Venn diagrams, which is probably the only thing I ever retained from my logic class that I took in, <laughs> in college because that has been useful to me. Venn diagrams, some stories seem like Venn diagrams to me. I think of Rubik's Cubes. I, I once I wrote a whole book that in my mind is a 12-sided Rubik's Cube. And I think of rhombuses and trapezoids, and I'm clearly a frustrated uh, <laughs> geometry <laughs> teacher or something. But I, but I, and really, it, when I'm reading, to try to stick to that half of the question, it helps me to unlock the mystery of the story if I can imagine its structure in actual physical geometric terms. Yeah. 
Um, my mom had a pretty good answer to this. Uh, she, she's not a writer, but she's a, a very keen reader. And uh, we were exchanging emails about totally mundane things. Like, I'm going to Minneapolis, going to be on some panels. One is about structure. She's like, structure, huh? Uh, maybe thinking that did not sound scintillating. Uh, and she, she wrote me this email. As a reader, I just want to be blinded by the brilliance of invisible structure that is clearly there. Mm. <laughs> Smart like, copy mom. paste. Yeah. Thanks, mom. Um, and yeah, invisible structure that is clearly there. And I and I love that so much because I think for most most conventional short stories, and I so not talking here about kind of hermit crab stories, something that is very clearly like a story in the form of a shopping list or. Um, uh, borrowed forms, but something that is in paragraphs moving down the page. Hopefully, you're not necessarily thinking about structure all the time, you know, as you're reading it, as you're encountering it, but it still feels inevitable. Uh, and another, I think, really useful way to a useful way to think about structure. Um, I thought I was stealing this just from the writer Todd Koneko, but it turns out there's also a TED Talk from Andrew Stanton where he makes the same metaphor. Uh, and it, it's the joke metaphor. Um, so, knock, knock. Interrupting cow. <laughs> Moo. My daughter loves that. Yeah. <laughs> I know that's like where my joke development stopped is like you know, childhood. So I mean, it's not a good joke. I'm not saying it's particularly yes, it's funny. A, it's a totally it's good joke. A great joke. <laughs> but it's got a clear order. It's got a clear development, and everything in it has to come in the order that it's coming to work at all. If you say moo first, it's not funny. There's no reveal. There's no surprise. There's no payoff. Um, if interrupting cow shows at the beginning before the knock, then it doesn't work. Part of why it's so infuriating to listen to a really bad joker tell, like, oh, oh, what, what I forgot to tell you is, and oh, oh, but what you need to know is this, and I got this wrong. I, they're, they're, telling, they're bad at telling the joke, um, but they're messing up the order, and they're messing up that pleasure of sort of step by step by step getting everything you need at the moment you need it for that ending or that reversal or that change to really land. Um, so structure as is, is joke, I think, is, is useful. Okay, from an editor's point of view, since I see every possible form known to mankind, I can tell you, for me, it starts with language, that the language dictates the form. I see an incredible amount of very clever stories that are, you know, I wonder if I could write a story from the, you know, uh, in the shape of an oak tree, you know, and it's... It has nothing to do with the language of the characters. It's a stunt. It's a prompt. David Baker, on an early pa earlier panel today, right here on rejection, said one of his pet peeves are prompt stories and poems that you can that you can see what what uh, we were just talking about with the invisible. It's incredibly visible. That's all you see is the structure. What I look for is a marrying of language and form so that this particular story could only be told in this form. And that's dictated for me by the language, the language of the characters. Because I, what I want in a short story is how James Wood puts it in, um, in How Fiction Works. You want to be a co-creator of the world. So you want to be, as a reader, you want to be co-creating the world and get to the inevitable point together. You don't want to be like, oh, this is the shape of a triangle and it's going to lead to X or you know, whatever it is. If you have that 
feeling that you know exactly how everything is going to unfold and leaving no room for the reader to sort of co-create with, then, then you lose me. So for me, it, it starts with language. It starts and ends with language because I, I can smell immediately that a story is a, is a stunt, that there's no skin in the game. It's like, oh, you're really clever. That's great. High five, gold star. Uh, but I, I want to, I want to be sucked into your world and and feel that there's some kind of emotional payoff to the stunt. I uh, these days a lot of my thinking about structure is shaped by my teaching. Uh, teach at Baylor University, and uh, in my intro classes, I, I try and get students to think of this sort of idea of basically what they've been describing, the invisible hand that the the reader should feel always in control without ever being able to see how they're being controlled, not to know what the structure is necessarily, but to know that there's one there. And then my when you get more advanced classes and more towards graduate level, I tend to start talking about this possibly silly idea I have that's that's related to that. Whereas Rob is, is saying language, I think of just straight content. Um, somebody told me that when I'm explaining this, I should say objective correlative to make myself sound smart. But that's <laughs> Elliot thing. I, I don't actually know what that means. But what I, what I'm talking about is I I do in in much what Rob said. Um, at least as a reader, I think a lot about how the form comes out of the content for me, especially the emotional shape or the emotional content, so that the form not only feels inevitable, but feels like a deep expression of something that's at the heart of the story itself, instead of this sort of separate right. um, thing, if that makes sense. So that's sort of how I think about it as a reader. Absolutely. So how do you guys, how do you try and make that happen in your own stories? I mean, what's that, when in the process are you thinking or not thinking about structure? Uh, what's that process like for you or, or Rob for editing, working with a, a writer? Yeah, I mean, I, I wanted to just tack on something that, that you said. I mean, it, I think it's, I think for me, I read too many stories where language is simply a conveyance for content, you know, where, where language is the dump truck that has picked up the content <laughs> and is carrying it to the reader. Yeah. And, and so, so for me, I mean, just to be clear, like I don't write a story in the shape of a Rubik's Cube or a series of Venn diagrams because I think it's clever. I write a first draft and then try to understand what shape the story wants to be in. And, and for me, that's very, um, it's very story specific. Like I might make up a different formal idea, a different geometric idea for, for every story I ever write, or I might not. They might repeat themselves. So I'll just give you a couple of examples about how structure was revealed to me in, in my own work, how this works. I was asked to contribute a, a short short to an anthology recently, not recently, a couple years ago, and it had to be under 750 words, and I don't generally write that short. So I had, a little, I had a little incident, I had a little scene that I thought could be a little story. And so I tried to make it fit into 750 words and it went to 1,000 words. And so I was like, okay, I'll try again. So I tried to pick something that was even smaller that I could get into 750 words. And, and so I tried again and I failed again and it was 1,000 words. And it was approaching the deadline of this anthology 
And so I tried one more time with something I thought was super small and could possibly fit into 750 words, and it didn't. It was 1,000 words. So after about three weeks of writing, I had three 1,000-word pieces and nothing for the anthology. But because I had written them in the same moment and in a way in the same spirit, I noticed that they really spoke to each other, that, that they were interacting with each other, and they had some of the same metaphoric, even thematic concerns. And so I came to understand that what I had written was a triptych. I had written a three-paneled story. So that was sort of an, an easy one that got revealed to me. Uh, a time years ago before that, I wrote a story called Three Lessons in Amazonian Biology. Though it wasn't called that yet. I didn't have a title. But I'd written a story about a trip I took to the Amazon. And the story was about all the sort of biology, all the, the natural science of the Amazon that I had discovered and its sort of metaphoric potential, right? And then it was also about these three really bad blind dates I'd had, <laughs> in, or my character had had, <laughs> uh, in the San Francisco Bay Area. And those two things seemed to be sticking together in the story. And one of the things that happened to me in the Amazon on my trip to the Amazon, which the story was loosely based on, is that a 15-foot Grand Cayman, a giant alligator, jumped into our canoe because the guide was making baby alligator noises and (laughs) calling the Grand Cayman to us. And so this big mama Cayman put her her paws, her her feet, her alligator feet, into the front of the canoe and the guide who was sitting in front of me like wisely catapulted himself <laughs> over my head. And so here was the Cayman, you know, snapping her jaws. And I was taking pictures. And then I sort of realized I had backed my lens all the way up. You know, anyway, and then she went back down in the water and everything was fine. But that became the climactic moment of the story. If a, if a, if a giant Cayman jumps into your canoe, it, you, you can hardly avoid it as at least the, the active climax of your story. And I had another story in the same collection that had a really early climax, and I was nervous about that. I was nervous about having two stories that had this climax in the first third of the story. But the three bad dates in, the San, in San Francisco had to come way at the end of the story for them to make sense metaphorically with all the natural world stuff. I don't think I'm explaining this very well. But, but anyway, so it was a problem. It was a structural problem that I had to solve. And so I thought to myself, this story is really about biology, And I remembered my high school biology textbook, which was the last time I took biology, I'm sorry to say. And what I remembered about the high school biology textbook was that you could read the chapter or not because there was a nice little summary of all the salient points of the chapter. So all you had to do to get an A on the test was memorize the little outline at the end of each chapter. And so I thought, what if this story were a chapter of a high school biology textbook? And so all the stuff that happened in the Amazon was the chapter, and then the three dates were the lessons. And so I called called the first half the river, I called the second half the lessons, and in my mind, now, did a reader notice this? I don't know. know. And then I called it three lessons in Amazonian biology, so it would sound like a chapter. So in my mind, the, the the way I solved what to me was a giant, you know, work-stopping problem of that story was to think of this particular structure, the structure of a chapter in a high school biology textbook. And I titled it that way. And so, 
and, and, and it solved the problem. But what I said at the beginning and what I want to say is that it's like each story to me wants to find itself that way. It wants to find its structure no matter what that structure is. It's not like I, I think to myself, oh, I want to write a story in the shape of a tree or whatever. It's <laughs> like I want the structure of the story to come up and announce itself to me so that it then seems inevitable. Yeah. Basically. Yeah. There was a panel earlier today on finding structure in nonfiction that I was at, and most of the panelists, um, they were sharing their war stories. You know, they were sharing, like, the book that it took them four times to write or the essay that it took them three times to figure out what the structure was and kind of overhauling it over and over again. Um, and these were really sort of thoughtfully prepared, insightful descriptions of these individual journeys of pieces. Uh, and then during Q&A, someone, you know, raises their hand. It's a big room. It's very quiet, so the moderator has to repeat the question. And the moderator goes, so um, the question is, do we have any advice on how to find the structure for your piece without writing three full book drafts. <laughs> <laughs> and the answer was kind of no. I mean, they, 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 they answered it. But, um, I mean, there's really, there's kind of only two ways to go about this. I mean, you, you, can, you can start your story saying, I, I want to do this as a chapter of a biology textbook, and maybe it'll work, and maybe it won't. Or you just start writing, and you try and figure out, you know, what, what is the structure that this is trying to take on? What is, what is going to best serve this material? Yeah, and that takes kind of however long it takes. And, and if you have to discard it or change it, it's not that you did it wrong the first time, that maybe that's the version or the thing you needed to try to get to where you were going. I did at one point, like I, I had a draft that in, in hindsight was sort of a stunt draft. It wasn't quite like story in the form of an oak tree. But it, it, was, it was in these very short sections. There was this sort of like repeated refrain that was starting all of them. And I realized I did it, um, I'd written a couple stories in a row that were sort of like love affair abroad gone wrong. And, I, and I, I was so worried about repeating myself or I was so worried that I was embarking on the same story that I felt like if I used this structure, this scaffolding, that it would, that it would end up being something different. And I ended up with a story where that particular form did not serve what I ended up doing. As a workshop was very quick to tell me. <laughs> uh, I remember readers immediately sort of just jumping on this, this strange, what felt like a strange disjunction between the content of the story and this container that had ended up feeling increasingly artificial as the draft continued. And it was something where I was like, yeah, th this is not working. Let me break it apart. Let me restructure it. Let me find something that, that fits better. But I don't regret that first structure, that first container, because I think it did help me get to a different place with that story than, than it would have ended up otherwise. For me, I think, I think the magic point for me thinking about structure is about a third of the way in. Um, and, and I think that goes for novels, too. Not that we're not really talking about novels today, but for a novel, a third of the way is where I'm going to stop and do a full-on outline, um, which I think is more important for a novel than for a short story. But about a third of the way in is kind of where I've started to feel out this world. I'm starting to know what the story is about. And it's not that I need to sit down and plot out every single thing that's going to happen from now on, but it's the point where I might... Uh, draw out that little Freytag pyramid and like put my events on it, figure out where the climax is. You know, if you don't know what that, it's the arc that you know people draw on the whiteboard. And it, I, I feel you know the, uh, there's that famous Yale Doctorow quote that it's about novel writing, but it, that it's like driving a car at night. You can only get as far as your headlights, but you can make the whole drive that way. To which I always add, but you have to know where you live, right? Like you have to know where you can't just like take off into the woods. <laughs> so. 
I, at, at about third of the way through, I need to, a sense of where the story is going to land, where it's going, what it's going to be about, what the final turn might be, what does this character need to learn by the end. That said, if then I get to the end of the story and it lands exactly where I thought it was going to land, I have totally failed. Um, because it means I've learned nothing by writing this story. And if I have not learned anything by writing it, you're not going to learn anything by reading it. There's not going to be any kind of revelatory moment in there. It's just going to be me sitting out to prove something I already knew. So um, I want to kind of know and then surprise myself somewhat. And an example, Arna brought up a story I wrote that's called Painted Ocean, Painted Ship. And that's, an, that's a story where I really thought I knew where it was going to land. I even had the closing line. And it was this couple that had split up and they were getting back together. And way early, I'd like scrolled down and I wrote out this line that it was going to end on this line of, if he was dumb enough to take her back, she'd be smart enough to accept. And, um, and then I got there and that was just not the end of the story. And so I, instead of changing it, what I actually did was wrote past it. Um, and I have another two paragraphs on there where something kind of cataclysmic happened that I, hadn't, I, I myself did not see coming. And I think one of the reasons that story worked for me personally, is that my surprise in writing it, I think, comes through, hopefully, when people are reading it. I, I didn't show my hand early because I had no idea what was going to happen. So there's that, and I, I want to add, I'm really anxious to hear what Rob has to say, because I will say that of all the short story editors that I have worked with, Rob is the only one who will edit me on structure. And I really appreciate that because you get edits on language. And if there are any editors here that I've worked with, I'm really sorry. Um, but I love you all. But, you know, you get all these edits on language and like, oh, I don't know, the sentence doesn't make sense to me. And he's the one who'll go in and be like, you know, in this climactic scene, this revelation happens too fast and I need you to pull out this moment or I need more in the denouement or I need less leading up to this point. And um, that's really fascinating to me. And I, and I really appreciate it. So... Good. Thanks. Yeah, for me, uh, I, I think I'm latching onto your word surprise because uh, that's that's what I'm looking for. But it's a combination of of the invisible structure that that, that is there. Though we want to feel, we want to get to a point in the story where we are actually, you know, sort of surprised by how things are unfolding. But we also want to feel that the writer is in complete control. So that, I think that comes in editing where you really, you know, shore up. And I think in the writing process, you just really have to go through a million drafts and try it from just all sorts of different ways. And I teach as well. And what I try to do is discomfort my students. Because when you're writing, especially the more familiar material you're working with, like if you have a story that you've just been working over to death or it's based on on real life events you just there's an inevitability that builds up so i, I try to uh, get them to to th think about it from as many different angles as possible let's say if it's a confrontational story write the story from the other person's point of view where they are absolutely 100% right and you are wrong you know cuz like if you've been writing you know something based on your own life let's say with your mother and, you know, you've just worked it to death, you know. Write it from your mother's point of view, and she's absolutely right, and you are a louse, you know. But, but make it convincing, you know. That's, that's what we want. Structurally, I, I don't know. I, I think with... It's kind of intuitive. It's like the joke. If the moo comes too early, you know, you just... 
uh, it's a pacing thing where you want to prolong the pleasure or extend the pleasure, as it were. I see a lot of stories that try to go for like a big reveal, a big aha thing, when that's actually not what the story is about. You feel like they need to put in a, you know, a rim shot kind of like, and then I realized I was, you know, and it's like, oh, God. An oak tree. Yeah, it's an oak tree. I'm an oak tree. Um, <laughs> you know, if you look at a lot of great short stories, the reveal happens in the first line, you know, or the first paragraph. So it's like, it's not about... It's not about um, what, you know, what is, you know, the reveal isn't I was shot in Vietnam. That's not the reveal. Like, the reveal is what is it like to be shot in Vietnam and go on after that. You know, it's not the rim shot isn't the I was shot, the end. No, that's nothing. That's where the story starts. And I think a lot, especially beginning writers, you know, feel that they need to have that sort of denouement kind of thing when actually... What's interesting is what happens after you corner your characters, what happens after you make them uncomfortable. I think Robert Stone is one of, one of my favorite writers that way, is that he traps his characters where they have to face themselves and their demons. And a lot of writers would stop there. They would stop at the trap, like, ha, I've trapped my characters. But that's where it really just starts. That's what, you know, it gets at where it, what it is to be alive. So... Structurally, I find that really interesting where you can pin your, your characters as quickly as possible and then, you know, yeah. then the, go. The Helping by Robertson is yeah. a good, really good example of that if you're curious to read. Yeah, I would say, you know, it's, it's so interesting to hear you guys talk because I say that a lot. Like, you have to get away from this idea, from any idea that you know what the story is about. I think things started really changing for me in my own writing when I sort of realized that you should think of structure as a vehicle of discovery rather than as the discovery itself, right? Mm -hmm. Um, And I think I sort of have a weird approach to it. I think this is, I mean, maybe I'm not good at structure, but I think about really early on, and I think really specifically not so much about structure, but I think the specific manifestation of structure, which is about time. I think time for me is synonymous with structure in a lot of when I'm working on stuff. And it usually, for me, when I start, what I'm really doing is thinking about structure. What I'm really doing is uh, thinking about a question I have about time, right? Um, So in various stories, you know, I wrote a novella where I think the basic question for me was, you know, it's about a a young couple with a child who's, who's dying of a terminal brain tumor. And the question was, you know, when you have this known finite um, amount of time, how do you find meaning, you know, loving a child as a parent? But I also did a lot of, you know, a lot of my stories are about Iraq, and a lot of the questions I had about that were actually, you know, about time. You know, um, I kept wanting to write about uh, the explosion of an IED, and every time I wrote, I sort of failed. I was unhappy with it because it came out just as this, like, you know, war story or like, you know, Hemingway want to be like Heming, not me. Um, uh, And the story I ended up with really came from just like, I realized I had this question, which is how do you show, you know, a human being's entire life in this, in this span, this like majestic span of time in the moment they step on an IED. And that's where the structure of that 
you know, came out of for me. But I think um, that idea of, of thinking about time, you know, Alice Monroe is great at that. Uh, she has a story, it can never, I always forget which one it is, that it's like three-fourths of it is, is perfectly linear, and then the last section jumps forward like 20 years. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, no, another story I worked on was, just I had this question, which is, can you tell a story that's with two halves that are separated by you know thirty years, and what kind of emotional crux, what kind of heart of a story of the things I was interested in, uh, could be expressed that way? But that's sort of how I think about it. I was sort of thinking along those lines where I was wondering if you guys could pinpoint a moment or maybe a period in your life, either as a reader or a writer or an editor, that you began to understand or, or think about structure in short stories differently than you had before? And if so, like, what was it that changed that for you? I can, I can start. Partly just because you brought up Alice Monroe, but I think I would have thought of this anyway. Um, I think the, the moment that I... The, the, the single moment when my aesthetic most clicked for me and when I understood the most about writing was reading Alice Monroe's story, Post and Beam, which... Basically, um, I'm not giving anything away here, but it's a long in-the-moment story about newlyweds. Um, And then in the last sentence, she basically says, this was all a long time ago when they lived in North Vancouver in the Post and Beam house when she was 24 years old and new to bargaining. And suddenly in that moment, we've zipped ahead in time to sort of telescope back at this moment. And instead of just being this in-the-moment story, she's built an echo chamber. It's an element, there's another element that it is bouncing off of, even in that one sentence. It's a strong enough magnet to pull everything from the rest of the story and to make it mean something different. And I think about Monroe, especially as Arna was saying, in terms of time, she does that with time, making a story mean more by giving you a memory that goes with it, a future event that goes with it, and creating space that way. But there are other ways to do it Two, And I think about Grace Paley's statement that every story is really two stories. In some way, I think that's always true, whether it's literally two plot lines or the story of the past and the story of the present or the story, the external story and the internal story. For me, I find the meaning of stories in the space between those two, in the ways that they echo off of each other. So... I think about that going into a story. I often think about, you know, I have one idea for a story. Is that enough? Do I want to pair it up with another idea so that these um, can bounce off of each other, so that they can create something, um, some kind of alchemy that wasn't there with just the one thing? And um, I think that, the, I don't know what it was. It was just a magical moment for me that, that everything kind of clicked to see what she'd done in just one sentence, but taking this space and putting something way out here so that now the story isn't just here, it's, it exists in everything in between the two elements that she's given us. Might not, you know, it's, it, that's about content as much as it is about structure, but it, it became the way that I think about my own writing. I, I, I just want to echo the thing about the ticking clock. I think that is really important to, to have a sense of time and put pressure on your characters that lends itself to structure. You know, Kurt Vonnegut says that every character needs to want something, even if it's a glass of water. And that, you know, people forget that. You just, they have these characters just sort of floating around with no desires. And that, that's you know, one level of the story is 
the, you know, getting the cup of water. And then you can tell a much bigger, deeper story that way. I'll give you a, a concrete example of this. Say I'm just dying of thirst right now, and the water fountain is up there. And I need to walk up there and get a glass of water before I faint. But there are five people I've slept with in the room that I have <laughs> to navigate five, through. My wife is on the sex panel, so I can say that right now. Um, so, you know, I'm walking to get that glass of water, but I'm telling the story, you know, and I'm, I'm dying, I'm dehydrated. But I can tell you my entire life story in that, that story. But the, the ticking clock, the driving engine is the cup of water, as it were. I, the moment it changed for me was reading David Foster Wallace's Girl with Curious Hair, which uh, is a very in-the-moment story, and it keeps you, you know, you're riveted. This is heinous, Republican, just total creep, but you're really, you're with this guy, and you, you cannot believe that you're invested in this guy. And it ends with him reaching for the hair of the young girl who's running away from him, and the last line is, and this is what I did. And at that moment, I was like, oh, it's not about what he did. It's about you were in the sensibility of this incredibly heinous character for 20 pages, and you were totally invested in his world. So it's not about the, this is what I did. It's actually, he got us to be in the sensibility of someone that we wouldn't necessarily, you know, be in. So it was like, oh, okay, that's, that's what stories are about. You know, taking you into another world, not... Like, it's not the Da Vinci Code. It's not, you know, is the albino going to get the whatever? Um, well, my story like that is, like uh, my, my piece of literature like that that sort of took the top of my head off and made me see possibilities in terms of structure and a lot of other things too is, Russell Banks' story, Sarah Cole, a type of love story. I was going to make you talk about that because I was spying on your notes. Uh-huh. That story too. <laughs> yeah. If you haven't read that story, if you've managed to miss that story, please read it. I'm not going to talk too much about it because one of its strategies is to lie to you repeatedly. And if I talk about it, I might wreck that for you. And honestly, one of the, the great sadnesses of my life is that one can only have the experience of reading Sarah Cole, A Type of Love Story, the first time once. (laughs) It is a dazzling story of structure and feints and dodges and deceit and reveal. It's, It's just, I can't say enough about it. But one thing that I wanted to say that, that I think bears saying, one reason why I think about geometry and think about shape and structure early is because it makes me feel secure when I don't want to think about the aboutness of the story and I don't want to think about traditional narrative arc. I'm a problem solver and I have a pretty good analytical mind and when I'm writing early drafts, what I'm trying to do is keep my analytical mind at, at bay as much as I can and invite the subconscious in to my process as much as I can, which is not my tendency. I, try, I tend to be a control freak, and I t- tend to like to solve problems before they've even happened. That's my personality. And so, so when I'm writing, I'm trying to go against my own grain and invite the subconscious in. So if I'm thinking about a story 
as you know, a, a series of interlocking rhombuses, that keeps me from thinking, oh, well, these people have to be together or not at the end of the story. It keeps me from the sort of mon- mundane questions of the story, and it allows what I think of as kind of the, 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 the metaphoric soup to kind of ferment and boil in there and, and, and the aboutness of the story reveal itself to me. So, it, so I'm, I'm thinking about the geometry of the story. And then at some point in the writing, narrative arc, I think of it as like the sleeping dragon of narrative arc. It wakes up and asserts itself because the story still has to begin and end. And, I, and it has to get somewhere. Um, and so, so there's, a, there, there's a, a kind of exciting moment in the story, and it's kind of the moment where I think, okay, I've got something here, where that narrative arc, that, that dragon is awake and rising and pushing against my trapezius or whatever, you know, my, <laughs> my, my geometry. And, and that's creating a kind of nice tension sometimes. And sometimes, as you said, you know, the form has to break at that moment. Like, it can't hold up. But that's okay, because it got me to that point. It got me a certain, a certain distance into the story without me trying to problem solve, because like, that's the worst thing that I can do. When I start problem solving, I may as well just get up and go for a hike, because it's, nothing good is going to happen. So it got me to that point, and then perhaps there's another form that will take over, that will, that will solve the problem. Or sometimes that tension holds. And the story runs all the way to its end with that, with that narrative arc rising and the geometry, you know, hanging in there. And that can, that can be good, too. Yeah, I mean, Al- Alice Monroe, who's already been said, is such, yeah, the, the structural genius and the way that time is used, uh, it's sort of endlessly worth kind of trying to, to parse and, and think about. Uh, Louise Erdrich was someone that I read really, really early, and I think helped me understand just what a short story was. Uh, and I love what Rebecca pointed out about the, the famous doctor quote about the headlights. You still need to know where you're driving. You still need to know where, where home is. And I think reading the endings of some of the sections or stories, depending on how you see Love Medicine, um, that, that was the book that made me realize, like, oh, that, that's where home is. Like, that, that ending moment where there are things you know and things you don't, but the reality is established that I, I, I feel... So, like, interrupting cow does not need a reality beyond that joke. Like, interrupting cow is done when the joke ends. We don't need to believe that interrupting cow goes home for the night and, like, pours a scotch. And thinks about things. I, but but a, sh- a short story, it's, I, it's, it's such a hard moving target to hit because that, that sweet spot of like feeling a certain sense of, of, of knowledge or of understanding or of satisfaction, but then a sense of that it, that it is unresolved, that it is still out there in the world, that there is still a question, that there is still a reality, that there is still a life that is continuing. Um, I mean, that balance of the known and unknown, I think, is it, it's what's so fun about writing and reading short stories, but it's, it's a really hard mark to hit. Yeah, and, and Erdrich was probably the first person where I realized like that that was a mark that I needed to, to aim for. Rob, Rob. I just want to add, yeah, if you haven't read Helping Robert Stone, just run out and read it right after this. It's a great example of what you were just talking about. It ends in this moment that is ambiguous. You know, you can read it, you know, it, it, it's unresolved, and that couple is still, still lingers for me. You know, I'm still devastated every time I read that story. And I just wanted to add one more thing about um, sort of time. And and another way to think about structure is almost vectors. Let's talk physics. Let's move to physics. Um, I love... a list of classes I failed. Yeah. Well, it's a simple. It's uh, more momentum than anything. 
I love stories where you're going in one direction with with unbelievable inevitability, and then it shifts. Mm-hmm. I'm thinking about James Salter's Last Night. Um, when you're reading that story, you are so hooked, and you are so in the boat, and you're being emotionally manipulated, and then there's a swerve, and you're just like, <gasps> you can't do that. And uh, it's like, oh, he did it. I hate reading stories where you're on that track, and that's where it lands. You're just like, really? You've been pointing us, you have all these roadmaps and signs, and you were leading us to this point, and there, it goes there? <laughs> I'm like, thanks. I mean, I could have stopped after one paragraph, you know? I think of, like, Lord Jim. You know, the, I don't remember how many of you read that, but I'm going to spoil it for you right now. Just, um, <laughs> first hundred pages, you're, you know, going one way, and then it takes a gigantic swerve on page 101, and it's really satisfying. I, I was just going to say, Rob, you, you should get ready to receive about 100 interrupting Cal the day after yeah. stories. Uh, <laughs> I'm ready. Probably I'm ready. like three from me. Yeah. <laughs> In the shape of a cow. Uh, I was just going to say, yeah, I think I won't, I won't add to what Pam said about Sarah Cole type love story, which was one of those moments for me. But I think one of the big ones for me was uh, reading this Nabokov story, Spring in Fialta, which is sort of was once like a very, very famous, like widely anthologized story, and it's still somewhat, but it's just, it's not taught much for a variety of reasons. It's, it's dense, it's difficult. Um, Nabokov being Nabokov is, doesn't really care if you're having a good time. <laughs> but it's also heartbreaking, um, probably tied for the most heartbreaking story I've ever read. And it's also the ultimate proof of Rob's like language um, structure theory because Spring and Fialta is a story that seems all at once to have no structure, that lies to you directly about what structure it's in, <laughs> and that has this like er structure, like this genius structure that you only can see after the last line of the story. Um, there's nothing, nothing like it out there. And I think part of what you realize after you finish that story, so it's, it's you know, first of all, it has the best first line title pairing I've ever heard. So the title, uh, the title is Spring and Fialta, and the first line is, Spring and Fialta is cloudy and dull. <laughs> and you're like, yes, keep reading. And then goes on this epic Nabokovian paragraph with just, like these run-on sentences that are descriptions of these, like this sad funicular of this, like a once great resort town. This makes it sound like just the worst, you know, this like tepid breeze and, and this uh, this foreigner walking around in it. But it it the the sentences are are very long and they're very exact. They pack every single detail possible into it. Um, and it almost like is stalling time, and it and it stays this way through almost all of the story. And, and it's my students hate it; they just hate it. They hated it at Iowa in my graduate workshop, you know. And it's just me who sort of loves it. But um, but the reason why I love it is you realize at the end, and I'll sort of spoil it for you because it's it's not a spoiled type of story. You can just read it endlessly. Is you realize after the end that the reason he was doing this is because what the story is about is this desperate attempt to preserve the time when one of the characters was alive. 
um, and is, is especially for someone who can be as chilly and cerebral as Nabokov, is really this penetrating, just knock you flat story. And I think part of what I took from structuring that was I saw the way that the heart of that story was, you know, manifested in every structural choice you make. Sometimes in my writing classes I'll say, you know, every choice in fiction is about control. This is sort of a reductive way to think about it, not that, you know, poetic, but, you know, every choice you make as an author of fiction is about control, controlling the reader's experience of the story, controlling the story, um, but to an end, right, to express maximally the heart of the story, not to have the most efficient structure, not to have a structure that's going to keep Rob Spillman reading in, in the slush pile, no offense, that's good too, right, but, um, you know, I think several things about that story just blew me away, one of which is that there was something higher to go after. You know, I used to think a lot about structuring the first part of my story so that editors would keep reading, you know, or so that I could be more like the Rebecca Mackay, you know, so I could, so I could be Rebecca Mackay Jr. But I was going to say, <laughs> speaking of which, I was going to say that, and, and I think what really helped me going forth is I immediately then, you know, as we do, tried to imitate it with, you know, really bad results. But I always encourage students to, you know, I go the opposite way of everyone's tired of reading, you know, Carver imitations or Wallace imitations or whatever. And I actually encourage people to imitate and to push it even farther because eventually when you're on like the 28th imitation, you're not actually imitating. And I'll just add like a really quick example about that and probably also slightly embarrassed Rebecca. But so I was really like Rebecca McKay, like fan, fan, boy. Um, and I would read the essays in the back of all her best American, you know, the, the best American short stories in the book have little essays in the back that the writers contribute about how they wrote a story. And, and for that painted ship, painted ocean story, she wrote about the story that basically that she just said. But she also wrote, I think in there, that it was part of like a doomed series of oh, yeah. stories that, that she'd written happened. based on, you know, inspired by great works of literature because it, it's deeply in conversation with Rhyme of the Intermarriage. So I said, you know, hey, I'm going to be like Rebecca Mackay, like just much less talented, and try and imitate, <laughs> imitate something. And I had just read uh, Robert Stone's story, Helping, right? Um, and I tried to imitate that for a long time, and it ended up that what I wrote was a story, Helping, which is in a public space, that um, just shares the title. It's called Helping, but it's about, you know, a couple who goes hiking in the Golan in, in Israel years after the tragic death of all of one of theirs' family, right? Um, and you'll end up in surprising places. Like, don't, don't resist that. What really matters is you can imitate, I mean, to me, you can imitate, you can know what the story's about, you can not, you can break any rule that I've said or, or they've said, you know, as long as, you know, it's in this ultimate service of, of the heart of the story. You know, that then if there's one thing that's going to make Rob accept a story in the shape of an oak tree, you know, if that's, if that's like somehow heartbreaking that's in the shape of the oak tree, if that's deeply involved in its heart, then, he'll, you know, he'll take it. Um, and I think that that's sort of any way structurally, any, sorry, <laughs> now you're getting 200 of those stories. Um, no, I, I love to be proven wrong. I mean, if you all write a, a great story in the shape of an oak tree, I just bring it on. You know, I, I said earlier on the rejection panel, it's like I have a pet peeve against the second person's short story. You know, you're walking down the street like, nope. <laughs> I'm reading your story. I am pissed off. 
So all my editors look for, for second-person stories, and land, I, they land on my desk every week. And I love when I have to eat my words. Like Jenny Egan wrote a just devastating one, and I was like, okay, shut my mouth, you know? Okay, I think that's our time. Thank you so much for coming. We appreciate it. Thank you for tuning in to the AWP podcast series. For other podcasts, please visit our website at www.awpwriter.org. <laughs>